My name's Alex Williamson, executive producer of Earth at Night in Colour, and you're watching The Go Creative Show. Hello and welcome to Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. My name is Ben Consoli, and today's guest is Alex Williamson. He's the executive producer of Earth at Night in Colour on Apple TV+. Alex, welcome to the show. It's brilliant to be here, and thank you for having me. I am such a huge fan of this series. It's absolutely stunning because you're filming in pitch black, only lit by the moon. And we're, it's just amazing that you were able to get these shots um, and be able to see it in color. This is truly a new way of looking at our planet. And uh, I cannot wait to talk to you about it and learn more about how you actually did it. But before we get there, a couple things. Our sponsor for today's episode is MZ Education for Creatives. There's never been a better time to learn and hone your craft than now and never been a better place than MZ. Learn more at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ. We'll talk a little bit more about them later in the show. Of course, follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. And you can do all of those things over at gocreativeshow.com, including learn more about our Patreon membership. So if you go to gocreativeshow.com forward slash join, you're going to learn all about our new Patreon. And we're really excited about this. It's a great way to support the show and build a community around Go Creative Show. And of course, we've got some really cool extras for you guys by being patrons. Uh, you get exclusive content that you can't get anywhere else. You get exclusive voting rights on which episodes we're going to be featuring or which guests we're going to be featuring rather, which shows we're going to cover. You get to ask questions in your own voice, maybe even on your own video and face on our show with a co-host privilege. And then, of course, executive producer credits for those of you guys that are big supporters of the show. So there's so much there, and it's all at gocreativeshow.com forward slash join. If you love the show, and I know you do, and you want to support us, that's a great place to go. Gocreativeshow.com forward slash join. So Alex, I was able to see five of the six episodes. Um, and I had to sort of like crash course them because, you know, prepping for the interview, I, I wasn't able to see the entire episode of each or the entire thing of each episode. So I skimmed a little bit here and there. But something that I love that you guys did is have a little behind the scenes at the end of each episode, which is like perfect for the Go Creative Show audience. So you guys out there watching the show, definitely stick through all the way to the end and then some because the last five minutes or so is exactly what we love to talk about here at Go Creative Show. It's making of the episode. Um, brilliant idea, Alex, and I think you must be getting a lot of great feedback from those. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? I, I think audiences really respond well to the making of uh, sections in any natural history um, series. Uh, and, and there's something, before I was making natural history programs myself, I used to love the bits at the end of the big kind of landmark shows where you see people heading off in there kind of to the, to the ends of the earth and trying to film these weird and wonderful animals. Um, and doing it at night, it feels like it's just kind of up the bar a little bit more in terms of the tech and in terms of the endeavour. Um, and it, that kind of happened organically as we were making the series. Uh, and at the beginning, we never had, you know, we were never planning on doing that. And as we started making these shows, um, uh, a few of our producers said, hey, I reckon there's a good story in, in what we're having to do to get the images. So we kind of made, made that decision as we were kind of midway through production. Um, so we kind of fell into those bits at the end. But I, I, they're some of my favorite bits, and they're kind of three, four minutes long. 
and also it kind of helps break the, the shows up so you get to spend some time in the darkness with a with a hopefully some really interesting animals and then hang out with the crew for a bit and back in for the next chapter so they're fun the show is stunning it, it really is i mean i like kind of these nature documentary shows regardless i mean people that listen to this show know that i cover it quite a bit but earth and night in color is like something you've never seen before i don't think it has been done before ha- has anyone filmed with these super super low light cameras at night so, I mean, for me, that, that, was, that was the reason for doing the series was um, it felt really new and it felt fresh. And there are so many natural history projects out there and so many natural history series out there. Um, and, and they begin to morph into one another. You know, we've all seen cheetahs running across the Serengeti. We've all seen white sharks breaching off, um, you know, South Africa. And one of the things I really liked about the idea was it felt fresh and it felt different. And we wanted to kind of immerse the audience in a totally new um, experience of the night, I guess. Um, And I think we're used to being uh, immersed in the night and it being quite a sinister and quite a, I don't know, a scary, foreboding place. Um, And the ambition of the series was to try and immerse the audience into this world and make it feel magical and make it feel uh, a place you want to stay and hang out rather than a place you want to escape from. Um, And once we're in there, it, it was kind of meet some cool characters, nocturnal characters, that you haven't met before or meet some of the big box office guys you have met before, but in a totally different way. Um, and up until now, I think filming at night's always been super problematic because it always has that quite techie, quite cold, quite um, scientific. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? It, it looks, yep. it looks like kind of green, black and white, grainy uh, look, or it looks as a thermal look, which I feel looks like a, a military, looks like a military missile locking onto a target. And yep. um, it's hard to emote with a lion that looks like a, a kind of a, a missile target. So, um, and it's always felt quite, I guess, male skewing and um, boisey. And, and we, the ambition was to try and use night in colour, which had never been done before, and try and immer- yeah, immerse the audience in the starscapes, the beautiful twinkling fireflies. Uh, and they look, there are all these amazing colours of night, which um, just feel really magical and, and fresh. So no, um, it's, it's a new, new technology. Um, the ambition was... Uh, was uh, large at the beginning. Uh, and then as we got into the production, we realised that the complexity and difficulty bar was probably even higher than we had uh, anticipated when we first started it. Well, like, wh- how do you even pitch a show like this? I mean, did you just... Um, uh, what what was your first step? I'm, I'm sure at some point the idea came to you where, you know, we really should do, you know, a, 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 a nature documentary at night. We can do it technically with cameras now. You can get like super, super um, uh, good imagery and ultra low light. But how do you pitch this idea? Because it seems like it's just riddled with complexity. Right. Well, I, I think the, uh, you know, it was two things. Firstly, it was, it was the, the newness and more than half of all animals um, are nocturnal. So there were all these stories which felt like they hadn't been told before. And then we, we found this camera technology and, and we started doing some test shoots with it. And for me, we started looking at this imagery and, and the old adage is you never start your natural history show at night because people find it hard and it's hard to stick with. So I've always been very cautious of it. Um, but then when we started looking at these test shots, it, it literally, I, I remember looking at these early test shots um, before we got the project um, commissioned and just feeling like, wow, it just feels so different and so new um so we we went in armed with some test footage and and sort of said look this is the way that we could make 
um, you know, the natural world look and feel. Uh, and we went in armed with a bunch of stories and we went in armed with a lot of confidence, I think. Um, and, and we got the show commissioned back in, I think it was um, May 2018. So quite a fast turnaround for, for natural history um, wow. timeline. So we were looking at, I think it was two and a bit years. And so the planet Earth's and those big landmarks quite often are four years. And two and a half years feels fast. Um, but in natural history, you tend to have a season to get things. So you go to, I don't know, um, the Okavango Delta in October, because that's when the rains are. And you have one little window to get it. So if if in 2018 the hippos aren't doing what you want them to do, um, you can't just go back again in January. You've got to wait a whole another year. So, so and a lot a lot of the shooting was done in one in one season. Uh, so we had one hit at it. Um, so yeah, so that was originally it was kind of like there's this, there's all these stories we haven't told, and the technology felt like it was just at that point where we could tell them uh, in a way that felt really, I guess, engaging. Uh, and it felt like yes, this world you wanted to stick around in rather than feeling after kind of 10, 15 minutes, God, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling claustrophobic and it all feels black and white and I, I want to get back to daylight. So it was a mixture of, the, of those things, I think. And um, yeah, and then, and then we, we got into it and then we just, we, we, um, we just started shooting almost immediately and we started making mistakes almost immediately, I think. <laughs> we, were, we were learning as we were, as we were going through the, through the project right from day one um, because it, it hadn't, literally hadn't been tried before. So it felt oh like new God. ground. And certainly I want to talk about those mistakes, but just to bring people into the conversation a little bit here, for those of you that aren't familiar with the show, it's called Earth at Night in Color. And if you haven't gathered from the conversation yet, they're shooting at night. <laughs> they are, you know, it's moonlight only, right? Or did you bring any external sources at all? So, yeah, so it's it's shot using moonlight. Uh, and that was, that again was the, um, I think that was the single biggest challenge of the whole project was, was the, Why? was the, well, I, I think, uh, uh, slightly naively, when we went into it, we thought, well, the camera's operating in, in moonlight. It's, it's a, felt like a really interesting new look, um, sort of. Uh, and at one point, we had, we had toyed with the title Life by Moonlight, and I love the idea of the silvery moonlight, and it felt, um, you know, t- 12 moonlit dramas was our concept. Um, but what I hadn't counted on was the lunar, lunar cycle and the lunar phases and from new moon to full moon. Um, mm. So the, the first mistake we made was we went down to the Pantanal down in South America to film Jaguars, never attempted at night before. And we got down there for a five-week shoot and the cameras were working pretty well. And then as the, as the full moon began to uh, disappear, uh, we, um, we realised there's vast periods of, of the months where we, we couldn't get an exposure. So we're literally having to base our entire shooting schedule around around the lunar cycle. So oh for, for maximum exposure, the cameras would work for three nights, probably either side of a full moon, uh, when you have maximum uh, luminance. And we could probably get an exposure, six nights, maybe maybe eight nights either side. Um, but then as you headed towards new moon, uh, then uh, there, there literally wasn't enough light in the, in the night sky to, to get an exposure. So we had to, uh, and again, normally in wildlife, you'd go out for six weeks and you'd sit on a, on a leopard and follow her every day, every well, normally every day, and you get that story. And for us, we were going out for these tiny little precious windows. Um, and after sort of six or seven, eight nights, returning back home to the UK um, with fragments of a story, and then you go out the next the next full moon. Um, so we had these crazy full moon schedules where we might have six or seven different shoots: one up in the North Pole, one down in Patagonia, one over in Africa. One in, uh, I don't know, Sulawesi. So they had these crazy peaks of activity, then these troughs of kind of recovery. So 
it was it was um, a very unusual um, working pattern, and I think for the whole for the whole crew and for the whole team, um, both in the office and also kind of in, on location, just to get used to it was was a total rewiring of our kind of our, our general kind of mode. Did you kind of like it in a way? Like, did it give you a different perspective on the project because now you had these pockets of time where you can maybe start editing or look through dailies in a way that you otherwise wouldn't be able to? Uh, um, I would say no. <laughs> if I'm honest, <laughs> I'm trying to put a silver yeah. lining on it, Alex. <laughs> if, I'm, if I'm honest, it, it was it was the, it was challenging and it was brutal. Uh, and so, weirdly, you mentioned dailies again. That's just not a natural history thing. Uh, we, we tend to let a shoot go out and at the end of, I don't know, three, four weeks, they come back and they might pop a couple of kind of key shots over to us and we get excited in the office about it. But in this thing, we were testing, we're right on the limits of technology the whole way. And we were, we were demanding dailies or nightlies from, from the crews, which was uh, deeply unpopular, I think. And I think you had people who were working incredibly hard out in the field who were, who were trying to get these shots, working right at the limits of the cameras and then we were having to check back and analyze the histograms and look at the look at the, the the pixels to make sure that it was just the right side of of what was okay uh, and that required a whole extra level of of uploading and sending um footage back to to the uh, bristol office uh, which i think people having worked through a night often kind of trekking after pumas on foot for for dozens of miles i think i think was uh as just an extra level of complexity and we were talking the other day and one of the producers was saying operating at night just increases the complexity across the board tenfold on everything. Uh, and whether it was finding the stories and, and normally we would research diligently the stories before heading out and we would, um, you know, spend four months, five months talking to scientists, you know, there's a, I don't know, there's a crocodile doing something over in the Australian swamps and you'd learn exactly what the behavior is what the best way of capturing it is, how you might go about it, when to go. And again and again and again, we were talking to the scientists and they would say the same story, which is, we don't know, we haven't really studied them after dark. So we were literally having to guess quite often what's the best way of capturing the behaviour, what's the best time of year to go. Um, and it was a shot in the dark. Um, and so that was tricky. Then simply finding the animals was, uh, we often use those thermal military scopes just to to find out which way to point the cameras ridiculously. The animal's more skittish at night because they're not used to humans and they were looking at you, kind of eyeing you up, thinking, um, what are you doing here? Are you, are you a danger? Are you a threat? Um, and, then, and then obviously just the whole technical challenge was, um, was uh, insane, basically. But, you know, when, when all, the, all the conditions and all the stars aligned, what it gave you was uh, a totally fresh insight into this kind of this world at night, which which no one has seen before, which felt really exciting. Oh, it's exciting as a viewer, like you said. I mean, we're we're so familiar with the, seeing animals on film now. I mean, we've we've seen it quite a bit. There's um, there's so many shows that have done it well, and it, you it, like the concept of filming at night is interesting to cinematographers for sure, interesting to filmmakers and people alike. But when you actually see it, you realize just how different and how fresh this is. And you also realize you're hearing stories that no one's ever, or you're seeing stories unfold that no one's ever seen before. Not just literally seeing the animals at night, but you're seeing them do things, behaviors that you would otherwise not be able to ever see. And I'm curious, did you, through this show, kind of change the 
history books change the perceptions of certain animal behavior because you're now actually seeing it like no one's seen before. Right. Um, yes, is the short answer. Um, I think the most uh, exciting, um, so, uh, across the board, we, we captured quite a few firsts and um, we documented things quite often that we weren't expecting to see or, or, or had no expectation to see. Um, yeah. Peregrine falcons hunting at night was a, uh, a massive first for the team. Um, so peregrine falcons, the fastest predators on earth, um, they, they um, nosedive out of the sky 180 odd miles an hour, um, daytime hunters. Um, Are these the, is th- this is the one in Chicago, right? Chicago, correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they've been documented many times uh, flying out of the sky uh, uh, during the day um, hunting uh, and difficult to film uh, uh, a bird. It's quite a small bird flying at 180 odd miles an hour um, in daylight. Um, and there was some evidence coming through that um, scientists had, had seen um, footage from nest box uh, cameras of adults returning to their chicks at night with um, food. Um, so there was speculation they might be hunting at night and there was speculation they might be hunting using the city lights. Um, but it had never been filmed before and never been seen before. Um, so we went out, um, we were working with scientists. Um, we went out, uh, a, a team, I believe, I believe, I think it was May, um, uh, to Chicago downtown area. And we set up on two different mating pairs. Uh, and one did nothing, just slept every night. Um, and the other pair began to hunt. Uh, it was during the migration uh, season, 250 different species flying through Chicago. Um, wow. And this, um, this mated pair um, was, began hunting um, using the city lights. Um, and what they were doing was fl- they were using the, um, the, sky, the tower blocks as, as like, a, um, like a cliffs, basically. So using them as, as nat- man-made cliffs and they were ambushing. So hovering above them yeah, and then using the shadows to, to, to fly at, at full speed down, down these tower blocks. Um, wow. and, they, and they were incredibly successful. They, they took eight, nine, ten birds a night. Um, and, uh, yeah, this, they started filming. And, and you know, the team didn't tell me, actually. They'd, they'd caught the – they'd filmed it. They'd said they'd seen it. And um, it was only when I first saw the first rough cut that I saw all these, uh, these amazing predation moments. Um, so that was, a, that was a brilliant bit of revelation. And, and uh, our team, in conjunction with um, the scientists, have written a paper on it, which is brand new behavior, which is waiting to be published. So that felt really, um, really exciting. And you know, across the board, cheetahs, another uh, diurnal hunter. Most cats are nocturnal. Uh, lions, leopards, jaguars all hunt at night. But cheetahs use their speed, and they just they do it in daylight. Um, and weirdly, with them, we were following um, uh, a lion pride. We were following the lions, and there was a very um, very quiet full moon, and we were shooting the lions, um, and they weren't doing anything. And then one of the team. Um, uh, so these two cheetah brothers seem to be much more active than we thought. So the kind of cameras just turn around, follow these two cheetahs. And on, on the first night, they had this insane night of um, they were trying to hunt everything they saw. They took something down. It then started the huge um, kerfuffle in the darkness. All the hyenas came in. There was this whole incredible um, unseen rivalry with, with hyenas. And we um, sat on them for kind of a couple of weeks. And this unbelievable kind of set of dramas played out and these cheetahs and you think of cheetahs as being big muscular cats and and they're kind of pretty timid and scaredy cats after dark and they're brilliant hunters but they just get bossed off everything so it was um so that felt completely uh, completely brand new and yeah across the board like everywhere we went um 
it, it was the same but slightly different. And I think same planet, different world was our kind of tagline for the series and, and uh, likened it to sort of upside down in, in uh, Stranger Things. It kind of it looks the same, but it's just everything's slightly off. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that was so everywhere we went. And some of it was quite nuanced. You know, the Jaguars were using, um, at night, we're using riverways to, to, um, to stalk much more than they did in the day and working with very experienced um, scientists and field guides out there. And they were absolutely gobsmacked. You know, they were saying they, they had no idea that the Jaguars would jump into, they would basically jump into the water and, and drift through the night on, on the rivers looking for food. So it, it, they were quite, quite delicate and quite nuanced kind of differences as well as the big kind of showstopper um, kind of behaviours. So, yeah, it, it felt a really exciting uh, project in terms of getting those first, those new behaviours. It's just so stunning to see. And I think one episode in particular that stuck out to me was the, you, you've mentioned it a little bit, but the, the Jaguar episode, um, at one moment in that, it's, it's actually disconnected from the Jaguar story, but the click beetle larva lighting up it in eating the termites. I'd love for you to explain that to people because just it's, it's such a visually stunning moment in the episode uh, with all these like green lights just kind of emerging from this pile of uh, dirt or I don't know what it is. Termite uh, yeah. It's just, it's absolutely incredible to see and you just haven't seen anything like that before. And I think something that's really interesting in the, in the, the, uh, the season as a whole is that because you're shooting at night, when there are natural lights like mm. a bore, uh, 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 oh, I can't say it, uh, oh, blah, blah, the northern lights, Aurora I'll say Borealis. it that way, yeah, yeah. Aurora yeah. Borealis, yeah. yes, um, when you have these natural lights in the darkness, you really can experience them in a different way, and that that episode, like I, I was talking about with the beetle larva, is, is one in particular. Can you talk to us a little bit about that particular scene? Sure, yeah, and, and well, weirdly, I... I... I'm really pleased you you mentioned that because across the board it's it's those magical um, and I think when we were selecting our stories we were looking at um, anywhere where there was uh, bioluminescence or any kind of that magical glowing nighttime um, uh, magic lights basically we really yeah. wanted to steer into it because that that felt like it was the magical feeling um, that, that magical feel for for the night. Um, so yeah, and when we went down to the the first the first year, we went down to this the slightly slightly problematic first year when we went down to the Pantanal. One of the things which really just I couldn't believe was was the was the jaguars padding around, and you'd see them padding through the darkness, and then you'd just see these little green flashes behind them, and it just felt like this crazy magic. It looked it looked it looked fake. It looked like it was um, VFX, um, yeah. and it, and it. it Obviously, it wasn't. There are these, these green um, fireflies everywhere. So the clip beetle larvae, basically, they set up in, in termite mounds, um, and they, uh, they eat the termites, and they do it by creating these um, beautiful um, green lights that attract termites in, thinking that they are um, potential mates. So the termites fly in towards them, uh, and it's this beautiful but deadly um, firework display, essentially. So they're attracting the termites, and they're these um, uh, very sinister, kind of looking, uh, gross, uh, disgusting little uh, larvae, which which um, tuck themselves away in, in the holes in the termite mound, and they glow and they bring in the termites and they they gobble them up. So it's kind of yeah, sinister and deadly, but beautiful. Um, and uh, we wherever possible, we in the jungles of Sulawesi, we 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 film fireflies um, 
And again, we're drifting through the jungle in boats with these cameras, capturing the, the firefly displays. And what's beautiful about them is it, it, looks, it looks chaotic, um, but then all the males will start flashing and they synchronise their flashes. So each tree um, flashes in unison. So it's kind of a huge signal to try and attract in females from miles away. So it's a really bizarre kind of secret world of stories we haven't seen. And that was very much the ambition was was come and join us in the night and, 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 and join us in the magic of it rather than this kind of, it always being a sinister kind of scary place, if that kind of makes sense. Let's take a moment and talk about education for creatives. And there has never been a better time or a better place to get that education for creatives. And it's all there at mz.com, mzed.com. Now, MZ. On MZ, there are hundreds of hours of video-based, really high-quality filmmaking education. We're talking about education in, in topics like directing, cinematography, post-production, visual storytelling, and more. In fact, one of their newer courses is the Art and Technique of Film Editing with Tom Cross, ACE. He is an Oscar-winning film editor who actually edited La La Land. So, we're talking about like A-list educators, talking about all sorts of topics that you need to know. Now, this is the perfect time to hone your creative abilities and get better at your craft. And on MZ, it's the perfect place to do it. Now, let me talk about their educators. Vincent LaFerre, Shane Hurlbert, Philip Bloom, the Ari Academy is on educators. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. I mean, we talked about Tom Cross, of course, editor of La La Land. But there's so much more there. And yes, you can buy individual courses, and that's fine. But the best thing to do, honestly, is to become an MZ Pro member. Because when you have that subscription membership, you have access to their library of education. You can just blow through these as quickly or as slowly as you want, really dive into a whole bunch of different topics. Like if you, you know, when you buy individual ones, it's the one that you're, of course, most interested in, and you're going to, you know, get focus a lot of time on that and learn and learn and learn. But sometimes there may be things that you didn't even think you wanted to learn more about, but because you have that membership, you are exploring different areas that you may otherwise not have explored. So there's, there's just so much benefit to becoming an MZ Pro member, and that's why I am, and I absolutely love what they have to offer. So, so it's all there at gocreativeshow.com forward slash MZ, M-Z-E-D, education for creatives. I want to talk about how you created the look and how you just accomplished the exposure and just the look of Earth at Night in color. Um, let's start with the camera package. What were you... Well, first of all, did you do camera tests when you were planning this series or did you know right away the camera package you wanted to use? Oh, we did so many We did so many camera tests at the start. And I think uh, one... We, we had a good idea of, of, um, of the sort of cameras we wanted to use. And, and what was interesting was we actually used a, a variety of different cameras. So it wasn't like there was one camera we, we went with for the whole series. Mm. And certain things were, were better in certain environments. Um, and, and we did this, uh, I don't know, it was about a week-long, ridiculous shootout in a field in Wales uh, with a horse, I think it was, um, and this uh, uh, poor woman who... Uh, uh, had the horse basically walked the horse around the field for us for uh, a week and there were a bank of different cameras lined up and we shot it on every single camera 
in every kind of um, exposure with every type of lens. And we were just looking at marginal gains was the, was the whole project was about um, where can we get that half stop extra light. Mm. And um, yeah, it was a battle for photons is, is kind of um, where we ended up. Um, so, so we did, we did a, a huge amount of camera testing, then analysis. And, and we were really kind of methodical at the beginning of it just to see how can we max our, our the tech. Um, but weirdly, the, the thing with this project was um, it was a project um, unlike any other I've worked on where you start, um, you go, the problem is what camera do you use? And you yeah. kind of solve that. And then you go, actually, the problem is what glass do you put on the camera? Uh, and you find out the lens. Then it's then the problem is actually you've got to film around what's the best full moon? Um, how do you get the best stars? And you want to shoot away from the full moon because the full moon will blow the, all the stars out. So rather than backlighting a lot of your animals using sunlight, which you normally do in day, you want to front light them so you get the moonlight on their face and you get the dark sky with the um, stars behind them. Um, then the post-process was was the biggest kind of um, push forward in terms of technological advances. So right from the beginning, we were trying to figure out the, the best way to do it. Um, and, and one of the cool things we did was we um, we looked at astronomy technology as well. So we took astronomy lenses. Um, so these lenses, which are designed for looking at very distant um, very uh, tiny, faint, um, I, I guess, I don't know, I'm not an astronomer, nebula or supernovas in the distant galaxy. Um, and we put them on our cameras and sort of pointed them back on, at our planet. And that's how we got a lot of our really, really beautiful um, longer lens, you know, the, your, your, you know any, any camera operator will know the, the longer the lens, the more glass you put on the front of your camera, the more light you lose. Uh, yeah. And natural history is all about getting that close up. So, pretty quickly we figured out we could get kind of big T1.5 wide-angle lenses and get beautiful big landscapes with lots of light coming in. But the second you wanted to get close in on the action, you dropped, I don't know, three three stops, four stops of light. So we were trying to figure out what's the best package of, of what's the best lens that gave us the best length in terms of, um, you know, shot size, but also letting enough light so we, we weren't kind of hemorrhaging F-stops for want of a better kind of expression. Um, yeah. So, so we kind of we used a lot of astronomy lenses for that, um, and then we also shot in full spectrum. So I don't know how tacky we're going to get, but basically, obviously, we normally shoot in white light, um, but we were shooting in the kind of the white light spectrum, and then also into in naturally occurring infrared light. So we had uh, all the all the the white light plus a little bump up in, in terms of IR. So there's there's a lot of infrared naturally occurring infrared light bouncing around the place. And so we shot into that just to give us that tiny little lift. So again, it might get you half a stop, maybe a stop more light. Um, so we were using every bit of light available to us. Um, but I, I, I've got a question about those astronomy lenses. Yeah. Uh, were, I guess, what is the advantage of a lens kind of used in the astronomy space versus just like a, 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 a super, super close up, zo close up zoom lens? Like, does it, is it made specifically to be faster so you can get more light in it? Yeah, exactly. So it's designed, it's designed for capturing these. And we were basically thinking, how do you know, normally we use a CN, um, CN20, like we normally use a, a big, you know, big fat thousand mil lens. But, um, yeah. but by that point, you're, you're losing so much light. So we were thinking, where, where can you find lenses which are designed for shooting things that are very distant but also very faint? And that's where uh, one of our lead, well, our lead camera um, tech advisor. Um, he is also a uh, passionate astronomer. And, he was, and, he, and over a pint in a pub, when we were allowed to do that, 
he said, I've got a great idea. Why don't we look at these astronomy lenses? Um, and then we embarked on this kind of down this route of, of adapting these crazy big kind of 20 kilo lenses, yeah. um, which are pretty good, you know, if you're on a Jeep and you can mount it to a Jeep, but when you're hacking through a, a jungle in, in Sulawesi and one of the making of sections is, is him reaping the rewards of his idea, hacking a kind of uh, carrying a massive lens through the Sulawesi <laughs> jungle probably regretting it, but... Um, exactly. I was, I was just thinking, kind of you probably said, of a why lens. did I suggest yeah. this? Yeah, whose idea was this? Um, so, yeah, so, that, so that, that, was, that was why we turned there. And as, as, the, as the production moved forward, we actually began to find other more normal lenses which kind of offered that advantage. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was the kind of... It was just looking at every... Trying to think laterally of everything that, uh, you know, taking tech from wherever it was kind of appropriate... So after all that extensive camera testing with the horse in the middle of the night and the whole thing, what camera packages did you end up deciding on? So we used a lot of different uh, different systems for different uh, uh, environments. The Canon ME20 was our, probably our workhorse. That's the one we used the vast majority uh, of, of sequences. And, and that is a... Um, it's an HD camera, but we worked out a way of upresing it to 4K in a, and and across all our all our different tests. I think also we it was looking at what noise pattern they made as well, and we felt like the that, that particular camera, the noise pattern, and we were dealing with noise throughout the whole series, but yeah. it felt quite cinematic. Um, it had a kind of cinematic filmic um, noise quality to it, if that makes sense, rather than. Uh, more, some of the other cameras felt a bit more um, video-y in terms of the noise, had more um, tricky noise patterns to to cancel out. So yeah, that was probably our our, our main camera. Um, and then in terms and that's of the, the lenses, ME20, I'm I'm putting a link to all these things in the show notes, guys, so you can you can check them out um, as you're listening. But sorry, forgive me. What so the Canon ME20? Any, what other packages were you using? And, and in terms of lens, one one lens we used was um, called an Astro Lens. Astro Lens. It's just an enormous, uh, enormous, yeah, lens designed for um, astronomy. Uh, and we adapted that specially so that it would fit on the front of our cameras. Uh, and again, it was just fighting for every little photon of light. Um, and then across across the board, you know, we had different different rigs and dis- different systems um, that fitted each environment. And you know, one of the nice things about the show, I think, is is we got really into the story design as well. So we um, we start every episode in the daylight. Um, and uh, so the idea is we can meet our characters um, in, day, in day in the normal kind of familiar way. And then uh, we hit sunset and the lights dim, dim down and it's like switching the stage lights off. And then we, we fade back up into this different kind of look, um, which is the moonlit look rather than the sunlit look, obviously. Um and so we start in, in daylight, and for that we could use all our normal natural history kind of toys, I guess, and, and use gimbals to get that nice, beautiful, slow, drifty look. Um, and then we'd, we would head into night. And what was interesting was so many of those those kind of tricks and toys that we rely on shooting wildlife were stripped away from us. Yeah. Um, and we referred earlier to lack of long lens. You know, the closest we could get was probably 600 mil. Um, so we you don't get that thousand mil close up, the beautiful intimacy of a you know lion's eye or the twitch of a tail. Um, so you're slightly more mid shotty. Uh, the moving a camera, it, you know, all those kind of gimbals and shot overs and um, GSS um, stabilization systems, they hadn't been set up for any of the any of the night camera tech. So 
um, we couldn't get them um, re-rigged and recalibrated, at least not for the vast majority of our shooting windows. Um, so kind of a, a few of those really basic kind of cinematic looks that we often um, rely on to shoot natural history, uh, we had to kind of, we had to scratch our heads and, and figure out how to do it. Um, and yeah, the nighttime that we we kind of fade up into night and... Well, first of all, just to round out what you were saying before, I think even without all of those tricks that you normally have at your disposal, um, I don't think it really mattered, Alex, honestly, because like what people want to see these environments, like those close-ups are absolutely stunning. Uh, you know, obviously you want to see close-ups when you're seeing um, nature stuff like this, but because it's such a different world and you're seeing this at night, you really want to absorb the environment, I think. Like that is what made it, I think that's what made it different in and of itself is the way you shot it. And yeah, I mean, you shot it a certain way because you had certain limitations, but I think it worked for the show, 100%. I think I think it helped the show. Thank you. Well, and, and it's interesting because we had the discussion: is does it, do we want it to feel more um, doxy than cinematic at one point? And and you know, so much of natural history is kind of covering it in every angle, and and so many of these stories, you get one shot of it, and sometimes it isn't perfectly framed, but it feels more like you're in the moment. Um, yeah. So that was definitely definitely part of you know a, a look we were going for. And I think some episodes as well have, um, there's variety as well. The Cheetah episode for me feels it's dark and ominous and it's these two brothers trying to survive. Cities feels more like a kind of Batman movie. Lions is a kind of heartfelt um, story and, um, and, they're, and they're dramas. You know, that, that's what we were going for. It's not a conventional wildlife series where you go, here's a three-minute story, here's a three-minute story, here's a four-minute story. Forget that. Here's a three. And quite a lot of wildlife is, um, you know, amazing stories with a link. You know, on the other side of the planet, this is happening. And very early on in the um, in the development of the of the series, and partly perhaps because we we were trying to figure out, you know, how much are we going to are we going to get a really rich series, or is this going to be a complete nightmare? So we thought, let's lean really into character. So they're character, little character filmettes, little storyettes. So twenty two minutes. Um, and so, yeah, we meet our, our, our lioness and she's got her three cubs and we see her in the daylight. We can look into her eye. We can fall in love with her. And then we switch the lights out, you know, sunset. We, we light back up again and we see her in this new moonlit domain. Uh, and now she's got different challenges and we already know her, her story. We know what her, her, her arc's going to roughly be. Um, and then, you know, that, that's a story of a mum losing her cubs in, a, you know, in, in, in the night. Um, and we follow, and they're, they're family, they're family stories. So it's not all predation and killing. It's, it's about what's that emotion. It's, you know, a mum, um, losing her cubs. It's a little Tarsier family pinging through the forest and little ones learning how to hunt. It's, um, a Jaguar love story falling in love under the kind of firefly starry sky. So they feel kind of, they're, they're warm fairy tale kind of stories. It was, was the concept behind them. I want to talk about the lighting and the look, particularly the way you achieved color and worked with color in Earth at Night in Color. Um, first, I know that this is lit by moonlight, but was there any manipulation at all of light? Were you bouncing? Were you using negative fill? Were you doing diffusions? Anything to manipulate that light? So I'd say, um, yeah, the ambition was, all, well, I guess the ambition was moonlight. Um, and for the vast majority, um, and God, at the beginning, we tried, we, we went out there and we did try at the beginning using um, 
crazy kind of lighting rigs. We were, had helium balloons. We were bouncing lights off them. Uh, and um, every animal for uh, probably 50 square miles just took one look at it and, and said, I'm not going anywhere near that. Um, <laughs> and it would pool. Uh, what we discovered, ob- obviously, is you get that pooling. So you get that kind of um, the, the cameras exposed on the foreground and then you get that black drop-off. So you, it starts to feel like I've seen this before. Um, and again, the first time I went down to the Pantanal filming Jaguars, we had a boat with a camera on it and we had another boat with a big lighting mask and we thought, can we bounce a bit of, um, I guess, kind of ambient light in there? And yes, Jaguar takes one look at it and thinks, well, I'll just slink um, 10 metres away from the river and lie in peace away from these uh, clumsy humans. Um, and, and again, we've got that pooling effect. Um, and I think that was part of the journey we went on was to think actually, no, you know, uh, if we do this re- if we do this properly and if we do this kind of more purely um what's it going to look like and then we went out and we did this test shoot in zambia with hippos and we and it was all around the full moon and we were getting our act together and with the exposures we were coming back with you see the hippo in the foreground you can see three four miles um in the distance and the stars behind and you get this kind of it's the idea of depth and looking deeper into the night became this really big thing for us and it's can we look further into the darkness never before and when you don't light it, you get this, this, this incredible kind of new way of seeing. I think that's what, what people have responded to or seem to have responded to. Um, so, yeah, so moonlight for all the, um, all the big kind of, um, I'd say for the vast majority. And then there were some environments, you know, like maybe in the jungle or, um, uh, you know, particularly dark ones where we, we, we've bounced a little bit of, I guess, fill lighting. Um, but what, again, has been beautiful is that... Um, the cameras are so sensitive, you can bounce a little bit in and it doesn't disturb the animals. And I think before using, uh, I don't know, more uh, cameras from even four or five years ago uh, or technology from a few years ago, you'd have to up the amount of um, light that the animals are suddenly kind of, um, they're not being natural. And I think what was good about this was, you know, uh, you can tell the you can tell the, um, the big wide scenes are, are unlit and they're, they're, they're natural and, you know, I, I, any other film crew that wants to follow a, a lion pride and wants to try and light it, be my guest because it's <laughs> difficult. So yeah, so um, so yeah, that's so is is a pure look. So earlier in the show, you were telling us that you were shooting in you know in, in white light, but you were also incorporating some infrared into that. Talk to me about first of all, how did you even how what does that even mean? Incorporate infrared light into the into the imagery, and what does that how does that change the look of the shot? Sure. So we were shooting. Um, using white light as you normally do um but because we're battling for every photon of light and trying to get absolute maximum exposure we're also shooting into the infrared part of the spectrum the invisible part which our eye can't see um and this isn't us um shoot um using an infrared light which you might have seen before has that kind of green look there's naturally occurring infrared light in the atmosphere so we're we're shooting all the white light and then stealing a bit of infrared as well. Um, and we're just getting that extra kind of maybe one stop of light it would give us. Um, and so the reward is an extra stop. Um, so we get a bit slightly better exposure. And the the, um, the downside is that it skews the entire image pink. So a lot of the rushes came back looking kind of reddy, pinky, and they had this slightly unsettling kind of, God, is this going to look a bit weird, this whole series? Yeah. Um, and so what we would do is we'd get that image and then we would um, essentially strip the pink um, hue off it. So we would dial the pink back. And beneath the kind of that pink um, veneer were all these beautiful, naturally occurring nocturnal colours. So there were the blues, there were the oranges, there were the 
you know, there were weirdly green was the one colour which really got hammered by, I guess that makes sense, it being red. But beneath that kind of red um, top layer were all these beautiful naturally occurring colours. So we got the advantage of having a little bit more exposure um, and very easily just in, in the grey, we could whip, the, whip that kind of pink hue off and reveal all these naturally occurring colours, um, which was the kind of the, the way that we rebalanced the shot. Um, and then, you know, one of the biggest challenges was, uh, and when we started showing the first, um, first versions of these shows um, to our commissioning team was, well, it looks like daylight. Um, and, and they were kind of, you know, some, and it, it, there was so much variation. I think, you know, the, the night in Australia kind of seemed to look different from the night in Africa, which seemed to look different from the night in Patagonia. And, and I don't know what, I still, we're still figuring out why that was. And, you know, we were moving at such speed but, you know, for example, we did one shoot in, in um, um, Kenya and we were trying to work out why the exposure wasn't so great. And we realized actually it was burning season. So there, there were a lot of fields being burnt. So there were all these soot particulates in the air, which just were dropping our, dropping our exposure level just a fraction. Um, so, yes, one, one of the problems was it, it could, when you really dial everything up to the max, it could look like daytime. And then it feels like you're watching a daytime show. But not a particularly attractive one. So we had to find that right balance where we were being, I guess, kind of um, true to the, to the colors of night, but also um, trying to emerge. And we had, we went through a lot of different um, attempts and some were very dark and sinister. Uh, and then some were um, way too, you know, there's, there's the information in there to really dial it up and make it look almost like daytime. Um, so we kind of settled on um, a look, which we felt was pretty balanced, which was kind of right in the middle. And it felt like it, 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 it is the night in colour and it is kind of the closest thing I think we felt that, our, that our, our, our eyes were seeing in the field. And yeah, it felt like a, um, well, I, I, it felt like a, the right look for us, but it took many, many, many months of tinkering to kind of get it there. And, and we, we figured that out in the Lions episode. And then once we had that look, we could kind of roll it out for the, for the whole series. You must have been struggling with grain and focus. I mean, I, I just... How, how are you getting clean, fo a crisp focus when you're opened all the way, you're shooting at crazy ISOs? Yes. I mean, those two things must have been extremely challenging. Uh, yes. Uh, and I think we were, we're lucky that we, we work with the best camera operators in the world at, at this. You know, we, we were talking about the Peregrine Falcon. Um, and, you know, there, there are a couple of camera operators who specialize in shooting birds. And, and you know, we were lucky enough that they were on our team um, and they are the, the, the best people on the planet at, at following a fast-moving bird and keeping it in focus. Um, so we're working with the, with the best operators, brilliantly talented. Um, and, yeah, I mean, great question because I, I have no idea how a lot of them do it. And a lot of, a lot of time they're waiting night after night after night. In Finland, we waited for – one team waited for 11 nights in a small wooden hide um, for these bears to, to emerge from their hibernation um, and not, and – Every night we were, we were thinking, it must be, it must be tonight. And they radio and go, no, it didn't, didn't come out. So huge amounts of patience. And then um, they're, they're, they're such a talented bunch and they can keep, keep it in focus when, when the action happens. And, and the noise as well was the other huge and really interesting challenge. We worked with a company in Bristol. We, we took, got some footage and we sent it out to various, um, various companies and, and said, you know, um, here's a scene. It was. It's a scene actually. Um, it's, it's hyenas hunting elephants, which has never been filmed before, um, uh, and that's going to be on the second run. And but it 
but we're always. Oh, with... you're doing another six? Uh, yeah, there's yeah, there's another six. Oh, so, that's great. Yeah, um, a... Teeny World did the same thing. We covered yeah. that show where right. they they released the first six and then they're doing the second six. That's cool. Yeah. So so the um, so yeah, I mean the the I can do a bit about the over. I mean the overview of the series is it's is it's um, six episodes set at night um, and we run through the, these different worlds. And there's another six episodes due to be aired, I believe, in spring next year. So it's two runs of six. And I think it's, oh, it's a really great. smart way of doing it because I, I, I worry about viewer fatigue otherwise. And I think, you know, how do you get the audience to go from episode 11 to episode 12? You run the risk of feeling like you're, 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 it's beginning to become familiar. So it feels, I think having two runs feels really smart. And the, and the yeah. second run has got some cool really cool shows in it so um and it, it takes you to different parts of the world which is um which is great um i forgot what, what you asked me sorry i've got sidetracked oh the the um the noise oh yeah so so the noise so we took we took this scene and we we sent it out to various people and there was one company who just did a brilliant job with the noise um and weirdly we um we were thinking wow they've 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 nailed this um and it, it was borderline, you know, we're always running this, on this tightrope of what's usable, what's not usable. And we had sure. this incredible behavior. Um, and yes, it's a pack of um, hyenas, um, a clan of hyenas hunting an elephant calf. And the elephant's mum is trying to protect it. It's, it's absolutely heart wow. and mouth stuff. Um, but it was kind of a little bit borderline. And so we were thinking we really wanted to obviously see, see whether it was usable. And this one outfit came back, which is with they'd written new algorithms to deal with the noise um a company called new light in bristol um and um yeah we didn't know where they were in the world actually i thought well, they'd probably be in la or they'll be in california uh and there's no they're in bristol it's like well that's that's where we are and then we were like well where about meant bristol? to be and um and we were in our editing facilities house and we looked at it and looked at their dress and just like oh, this is weird and it turned out they were in the room um one floor above us in our edit suite so we put out this kind of tender to the planet and the guys upstairs had done it. Um, so it, it became quite helpful because we could back and forth ping pong out footage. So um, they, they were brilliant and they wrote new algorithms for dealing with noise and they were bespoke, you know, on each show we would look at the worst offenders uh, and go, right, this is a cool shot, but what can you do? And, and it would just be multiple, multiple V equals Q. Someone once told me versions equals quality. And it would just be kind of, you know, we'd ship it out. It would become a bit smudgy. They would sharpen it up a bit. And it was just that painstaking process of how do you get the, the best quality underneath all the no the sea of noise. Um, and, yeah, without them, I think the, the project, you know, they they were instrumental in, to, in the final kind of look of the project. So it, it felt like it was a, a series of bringing different people, the, the crew with their brilliant talents and patience, this, this team of people in Bristol, uh, and it was it was about just pulling pulling the best people together to try and um, create this new look. And you know, the ambition of the series was to immerse the audience in the night like never before, and to meet new characters in a fresh way. Um, and I hope that's kind of what the series does in in these different magical worlds, starlit magical worlds. Um, and it, and what I hope comes across is the authenticity of, of what it looks. You know, has that has a fresh look, but also it has a kind of a fairly pure, you know, it's a natural, pure kind of moonlit look to it, which hopefully shines through. I want to take a minute and talk about the voiceover for Earth at Night in color, um, because that's such an important part of any of these types of storytelling. Uh, it, that voice is what you hear the whole time, and you need to sort of 
they need to resonate with you. You need to trust them. You need to love them. They need to be good at it. So it's a big decision. Um, talk to us about that process and who you ultimately chose and why. Exactly. I, I think it's, it's telling your stories. One of the big things is who's, who's telling the story. Um, and, um, and I think you can have a great project and a great series and pick the wrong voice and it can really um, impact your um, experience as a viewer. Um, yeah. And when we were doing this project um, at night, we were thinking, what, what's the, is it a male voice? Is it a female voice? Um, is it, is it, do we go sinister and, and, and foreboding? And I think for a, a long time, um, we were thinking, let's, let's, let's take a slightly kind of sinister twist to it. Um, and, and weirdly during the kind of, uh, editing process, a lot of the guide voices, the more sinister guide voices, along with the dark material, it started to feel just, um, uh, sinister overload. It felt like it was too much. Um, so the obvious kind of direction to go down felt, felt kind of, um, actually the wrong one and we started thinking actually maybe it needs to be more family friendly it needs to be a warmer voice uh, fireside kind of storyteller come with me and immerse yourself in these worlds and we started to to literally um, take voices off off you know uh, the internet and just lay them in under our actors voices kind of um, authors voices lay them under our footage and, and we would just listen one after another and and it was it was really interesting hearing the different tonality that these different voices and often they'll be talking about know, about a watch commercial or whatever it is but you get the tone of it um and then we happened upon um tom hiddleston who uh one of the one of our producers said you know he's got a great voice and we took one of his early recordings um of an audio book and we popped it onto the footage and it was immediate and unanimous i think the whole team were like wow he's got a great voice wow. um so then uh, yeah we uh, obviously had to work hard to kind of persuade him to do it. Um, and, and what he brought, um, and he agreed, which was brilliant. And then what he brought, I felt he had this, this warmth to his voice and he's great at character. He's done everything from Marvel to theater. So he could really get into the characters and develop the characters. And you kind of feel your, you feel you're with him in, in, with the characters and he brings them to life. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we were very fortunate that he, that he, he did it with us. And we spent a lot of lockdown actually in various countries. I was in lockdown, over zoom kind of uh directing him which was uh he's a very nice chap to spend a lot of time uh locked into a zoom room uh directing so yeah he was he was a really good sport and um i think his his voice is um we listened to it and just thought he, he takes it to another level so we were delighted it is the perfect choice uh and you mentioned lockdown i just have to in our last minute or so um how did the lockdowns impact production so we were unbelievably fortunate on this one um and we had three and um, we i think we did um 80 shoots 85 shoots in a calendar year 12 12 months so mm. we just had constant shoots out um wow. and we had three shoots left uh, we had one up in um the canadian arctic one in patagonia and one in norway um and lockdown hit with um two days left on all of them and we flew everyone wow. back home two days early I think we literally got the last plane out of Chile um, and uh, got everyone back into the UK. Everyone dumped their kit in the office, locked the office up, and that was us locked down for two months in the UK. But incredibly, we had literally shot the last frames. And then we were in the editing process and we were able to um, keep that working, um, remote working. We were able to mix it remotely. We were able to uh, we set up grading facilities, so we ended up keeping it moving forward. 
sort of scra- scraping forwards in this yes. kind of lockdown. Um, and it, yeah, had it been two months earlier, it would, it would have been, um, uh, it would have completely destroyed the schedule. But we uh, obviously it impacted it and we kind of, we, we, we went longer than we int- intended, but um, we were able to kind of keep it, keep it ticking forwards. Did you have to do any reshoots? No, no. We so you were done. Even yeah. with the two days left, you still yeah. had everything you needed. Everything we needed. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. And, and again, like natural history is hard just to go and reshoot it because normally you have to wait a year. You know, the, snow, yeah. the snow's melted uh, or, or the conditions have changed or the lion prides disappeared into the long grass and you can't follow them. So, uh, you know, and this, and this project, because it was at night, so much of it was everything we filmed felt fresh because it's at night. So, so we could bend the stories um, towards what we were getting in probably with more flexibility than it had it been a daytime show, um, if that makes sense. So yeah, we were very fortunate with the, with the timing of a lockdown in the UK. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, obviously since then, uh, all productions and all schedules are just kind of up in the air, as we know. <laughs> well, for your sake, I hope your next project's a little bit easier, or at least takes place during the day. <laughs> it, 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 one, of the, one of the promises I made myself was I'm never pitching a show at night again, as much as I love it and as much as I love the end product. And, you know, and it was when we finally saw that end, pro- end product when it went live. Um, and the whole way through it, we were kind of asking, what's it going to look like? You know, and it doesn't matter how confident you are. There was that little, which I think is good and a creative thing, having a little edge of uncertainty. Um, mm. And when we went to Apple's opening um, day, Spielberg said, if it's easy, it's not worth doing. And that stuck with me throughout the whole thing. And then, uh, and then we saw it and it looked great. And I thought, yeah, I, I, thank goodness. But yeah, daytime all the way for me from now on. Amazing. Well, the show is just fantastic. It's called Earth at Night in Color. It's on Apple TV Plus, the first six of 12 episodes out now. And it sounds like in the spring, the next six are coming out. So you've got something to look forward to there. Alex Williamson, thank you so much. The show is just phenomenal. And I'm so happy that you came on to talk about it. Thank you very much for having me. thank Alex Williamson for coming on the Go Creative Show and talking to us all about this new project, Earth at Night. It really is stunning. And if you guys haven't seen it, I can't suggest it more, especially since at the end of each episode, you get that little bit of behind the scenes, which is just perfect for us here at Go Creative Show. So I know you guys are going to love that. Plus, it's just interesting to see. When do you ever get to see the Earth at Night like that? In in true color. It, It really is stunning. And you guys should check it out. Let us know what you think of the show. Let us know what you think of our interview in the comment section of whatever platform you're looking at this on. And uh, we'll address it there. Thank you for your support. I also want to thank our producer, Connor Crosby. You can find him at ignitionvisuals.com. Matt Russell and his team over at gamestructure.com who mix, mix and master and make the show sound so good. So thank you, Matt and team. And of course, thank all of you for listening and supporting. Don't forget, go to our website, gocreativeshow.com and follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And of course, Subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and join our new Patreon. There's a lot of fun stuff there. And uh, I just cannot wait to really build that and get some of that interaction between you guys and really appreciate the support you've been giving us thus far. So thank you, thank you, thank you. With that, we'll see you next week on another episode of Go Creative Show, a podcast for filmmakers. 